the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we uh, subbed out the reading from Romans for uh, the most horrific reading in the Bible, which is Abraham sacrificing Isaac, or about to sacrifice Isaac. The first summer I was here, uh, 12, 13 years ago, I was assigned to preach on this. Um, the, we just had a child, and it had just been Father's Day, and then God said, you're going to preach about Abraham and Isaac, and I thought, I don't know if I want to do this. So I dodged the bullet then, but I can't dodge it now. Um, what's so difficult about this passage that would cause so many theologians and philosophers? Soren Kierkegaard wrote one of his most famous books, Fear and Trembling, about this passage. Uh, why is it even in the Bible? Because it is horrific. Uh, it rubs up against modern moral sensibilities uh, and Christian ethics themselves. Thou shalt not kill. <laughs> and. Um, it's disturbing and it's upsetting for two reasons. Uh, what is happening and why it's happening. I wanna look at those two things and then see if we can siphon any good news. So first of all, what is happening? Well, Abraham is being commanded to commit murder. He's commanded to, to, to offer up his son as a sacrifice, a human sacrifice. Again, it's not just anyone he's being commanded to kill, it is his son. And if you know the story of Abraham and Isaac and Abraham and Sarah, you know that they couldn't conceive and they were promised this miraculous child late in life. And this child would be the fulfillment of God's promise to them, but also to the world. God says, I will redeem the whole world through your child. And so given that what's going on Isaac is more than just the emotional center of uh, Abraham's life. He is that, as any of our children often are. But he's also, you know, in this patriarchal uh, moment in history, he would be the security. He would be the economic status. He would be the social status. The fact that you have a male heir was extremely important. This is your legacy. This is your hope. And uh, this is your future. And so that's what uh, he's being uh, asked to sacrifice. Of course, he's, he's more than that. As I've just said, he's the emblem. Isaac is the emblem of God's faithfulness to the world, the long-awaited redemption that will occur through this child. Isaac represents God's promise, not just to Abraham, but to all of us. So Abraham is not just being asked to sacrifice his own flesh and blood, but his legacy, his hope, and the hope of the world. I don't think it's any stretch to say that it would be much, much easier to be asked to sacrifice oneself instead of Isaac. So we have a situation here, though, in which God's command to do this heinous act and God's promise to redeem the world are pitted against each other. They're at, at, at odds. They appear to be incompatible, and it is upsetting, and it's horrifying. But it's also upsetting, not just because of what is happening, but why it's happening. We are given 
the motive here. We are told why God is doing this. It's there in the first sentence. God is testing Abraham. Abraham is being asked to pass a test of faith. Now, let's backpedal for a moment, because testing is, is, is really arduous, is it not? I mean, have you, ever been, have you ever been really tested in life? Maybe you feel like you've been tested by God, I don't know, but maybe you've simply been, felt like you've been tested by other people, or you were even tested this morning. Have you seen my sunglasses, honey? <laughs> or yesterday you were asked, oh, where do you go on vacation? Uh, what do you do for a living? Where do your children go to school? Where did you graduate from? These are often tests. The right answer unlocks approval and respect. The wrong one uh, yields a dismissal. But again, there are much less overt tests. We veil our, the, the tests we, we give one another. Did you take the dog for a walk? Will you ever take the dog for a walk? Did you pick up the groceries? There's those memes about husbands going to you know, the grocery store and getting everything except for the thing they were asked to get. And we all recognize ourselves. I don't know what it is. It's like a chip in the husband brain. It just, it, it happens, I'm sorry. Um, I don't defend. But maybe there's someone in your own life, not that you feel like you're testing, though probably so, but is there anyone in your life that you feel like you're always failing their tests? Like it's one over your course of your life, you never seem to have passed any of their tests. And you feel like every question they ask you is in fact confirmation of your failing score. Well, we constantly take other people's measure this way and other people our own, despite the fact that this strategy, testing, it seldom yields love. Actually, it never yields love. Testing promotes self-righteousness and defensiveness. Testing kills love and passion and creativity because you cannot love and defend at the same time. They just don't, doesn't work together. Oil and water. And indeed, all of life can feel like a test. I'm right now in the stage of parenting semi-young children, and it feels like there's not a week that goes by where new research doesn't reveal how much I'm failing <laughs> at the test. I mean, now, I mean, the past week, I guess we were told that, it, in fact, French parents aren't the best parents on earth, that their children hate them too. <laughs> but um, trust me, it's because they're not Finnish, you know? Uh, if they were like that, well, then they'd be passing the test of producing perfect offspring. But maybe, what about the, the test of being a good child? Do you, do you feel like you're passing that test? How would your parents respond? Or maybe just saying the wrong thing. How many people, how many, in all areas, in all ideological enclaves, do I hear that says, I just feel like I can't say the right thing anymore? This thing that I used to say is now wrong, and this thing that is wrong is now right. I don't get it. I, I feel like I'm failing all the time, and I don't want to open my mouth. 
I don't know what it is, but I know that tests are exhausting, and I know that an evaluative atmosphere produces self-consciousness at best and resentment at worst. So please, 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 let God not be a tester as well. Take this passage out. Leave it behind. If religion, if faith is one more test to pass, then count me out. I'd rather sleep in. I mean, what about that test? How much faith do you have? It's maddening. Perhaps you feel like sometimes there, there are days where the sun is shining and, and you feel faithful and trusting and you, you can believe what Jen just had us say, that everything's going to be all right. It's all going to work out okay. And gosh, I can't... God is shining his light on me and I feel so clear about where I'm headed and how much he loves me. And then I get that email. <laughs> or I read that headline... And I think, I have no faith. Whatever faith I had seems to evaporate, especially when it's tried. But if God requires, as he seems to in this passage, the kind of faith he's asking of Abraham, well, that's a lot more than I have even on my best day. I mean, I fail. And I hope you fail, too. I hope there's not a lot of child killers out there. Maybe. I mean, leave. Just kidding. Uh, <clears throat> no, this sort of test, this kind of faith test, if it's to be taken seriously, well, I need someone else to take it for me. Bottom line. I can't pass. So is there any good news here in this passage? Is there anything beyond the fact that God is a tester and that he tests Abraham? Well, I could ex we could extrapolate from this passage and honestly and authentically extrapolate that what you think God is doing at any current moment and what he's actually doing are two different things. That the God who saves you very often feels like he's trying to kill you. And maybe that's a comfort to you. Maybe what feels like a test is actually God's means of instilling humility and forcing us to relinquish our defensiveness such that love and vulnerability and transparency may flow more freely. Maybe that's enough. Maybe not. All I know is that this is not the end of the story of who God is or how these faith tests play out. You cannot read this as a Christian without thinking of the other son, the other son who was put on the wood, the other father who sacrifices his only child. We see this on Calvary and on the cross. We see not only God who is the tester, but God who is the test taker. And of course, there is a big difference. Because while Isaac was rescued and spared, Jesus, Jesus was not. Yet his faithfulness was greater than that of Abraham. He was faithful to death. Faithful for our sake. This is the kind of love that would sacrifice itself. Let's not differentiate. Jesus was God. So yes, on the cross, God's promise and God's command meet. 
his love and his justice. And the Lord provides such that I might speak to you with assurance that on the count of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there are no more tests where God is concerned. I'll give you an illustration. It's a little old illustration, but it's the best one I know. It's from Friday Night Lights, best TV show ever outside of Seinfeld, of course. But it's pretty good. And in season four, if you know about Friday Night Lights, it's about uh, football in a small town uh, of Dillon, Texas. And um, it's really about everything. It's about life. It's a wonderful show. And in season four, they kind of shift the focus from the, the sort of wealthy, privileged side of town of, uh, of West Dillon to East Dillon, which is uh, the other side of the tracks, a much more impoverished community. And in that community, there's a star quarterback who emerges named Vince Howard, who's played by Michael B. Jordan, who's now become a huge movie star. Now, Vince is, uh, has been in trouble with the law. He's not had an easy go of it. And he's being redeemed through football, as so many young men are. <clears throat> and this depressed community starts to rally around Vince as he begins to win games that he shouldn't win. So then one night at a cookout, a local business owner comes up to him and says, son, we're all behind you. If there's anything I can do to help you, you let me know. We got your back. And so Vince thinks about it, and the next day he comes back to him and says, actually, sir, my mom needs a job. See, his mother's a recovering addict who spent several years off the rails and is trying to kind of make good and sort of come back to normalcy. And the business owner says, he says, well, send her in. And so she comes in and she's got a resume and she gives it to the man. And the man looks it over and he looks at her. He says, I see there are some gaps in your professional experience. And she's so silent. She says, yeah, I've had a tough time. Life hasn't been what I thought it would be. The man says, well, I'll give you a call. And then it cuts to the next scene, and Vince's mother is picking up the phone to find out that she has gotten the job. It's at a hardware store. And she has not gotten it because of her experience or her skills or her resume or her record. She has passed this test solely on the basis of her son's record. His performance, his righteousness, his arm. It's a beautiful moment as we rejoice in the hope that is conveyed through this vicarious passing of a test. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to suggest that all tests are bad. Some are arbitrary and cruel and uncompassionate. And yet some are not. I want my fellow drivers to have passed a driving test before they see me on the road. I want my children to pass a swim test before they're allowed in the deep end. I definitely want my doctors to have graduated from medical school, okay? I affirm the fact that some tests are good and righteous. But I also affirm the truth that God does not deal with us by denying the test or abolishing it, but by taking it on our behalf. And that because of Christ's finished work, what does it say in Matthew? It says, the prophet's reward is your reward. 
meaning the threat of ultimate failure and judgment and condemnation has been removed from you. The sword dangling over your head, the sword of approval, of achievement, and of love has been dismantled. What would it be like to live if you, what would, if you actually believed that? To live undefensively, not trying to justify yourself or pass everyone's test. I think it would be something akin to peace. So that's the gospel here. That God provides. He provides even for those who fail his tests, for those who ruthlessly test one another, for those whose faith seems to crumble whenever it's tried. And it is also this word to you that while the world may test you, your colleagues may test you, your loved ones may test you, and you may test yourself, God is not testing you. Our hope is the same as the hope of Abraham. And it is not found in the passing of tests, but in the forgiveness of failure, the forgiveness of defensiveness and judgmentalism. The fact that by the sheer grace of God, the test to end all tests has already been taken. And the grade, an A+. Plus.